is that is the key is that there is no world there are worlds we're constantly making worlds and so even in one place characterized by certain spaces with physical geometry there are multiple worlds to War Machine. Preston Price and I recently had a conversation with Matt Valor, who is a graduate student at Queen's University in Belfast about translation, semiotics, Karen Barad, alchemy, piracy, and uh, some other things as well. It's a bit of a long conversation, but quite interesting, I think, and I hope you enjoy it. You can find us on Facebook, at War Machine Podcast, on Twitter at War Machine Pod, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. If you like the show, uh, we want to hear from you. Well, if you don't like the show, we want to hear from you too. So leave us a message uh, through social media or uh, leave a review on iTunes. Okay, here is Matt Valor. My name is Matt Valor. I live in Cornwall, which is in the very far southwest of the UK. Uh, used to be an independent nation a few centuries ago. It has its own uh, history and tradition and language. Um, I've got into translation, which is the last thing I ever thought I would say, mainly because I only speak one language, uh, but um, translation has become a way of talking about and theorizing about meaning uh, that I've actually found more useful than hermeneutics, which was the discipline I came from. My background is um, uh, academically is in biblical studies, um, but I have a very kind of religious background in my past. I worked in the, as a for want of a better term, a kind of professional Christian for a long time. But uh, I, I kind of left all that behind. And um, yeah, I'm sort of part academic and part, I suppose, entrepreneur in the sense that I kind of make story-based experiences for people. And I use that as part of a consultancy business, um, particularly in cities, uh, but also thinking about more generally how stories shape the way we live, how creating literacy in that gives agency to change the world in, in a way that seems like it's better. That's, I think that's me in a sort of potted history, but there's a lot more I could say about all of that. No, it's good. I think there's a lot to unpack there with that idea of, of translation, because that can kind of push off in any number of directions. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll get there. Have you lived in Cornwall forever? Is that kind of home base for you? No, no, not at all. We, I, I moved here in, uh, so I, I married and I got two kids, um, 14 and 12. So I, we moved here about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before that, I lived up about an hour west of London, uh, which is where I grew up. So I, I lived in one place pretty much for 35 years of my life. So I, I think I have an interesting relationship to place. You know, most people kind of where I'm from kind of move away. And uh, I mean, I, I went to university for three years, but I 
uh, well, actually, I went to Bible college for three years. Was 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 actually what I did. So it, so that involved moving away. But I came back, and then I worked in the church that I'd grown up in, and so a real kind of like being back in the same community. Um, mm. But Cornwall was such a different place to 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 that. That was very like suburban Thames Valley. Everyone works in finance and IT. It's a totally kind of soulless, but really nice. <laughs> soulless but really nice they're well-mannered <laughs> yeah well it's just like got oh, some trees and it's like you know good schools are good and you know yeah. health indicators are high and and all of that but I it for me it really lacked it really lacked soul yeah I'm curious about the sort of impact of of space on on people's thought and you know we were talking to Petra Carlson last week or the week before and you know she's over in Sweden and we were asking about the correlation between you know the, the Swedish geography the climate the, the lack of sunlight in particular that you know at least in part gave uh, shape to her thinking and I don't know like overall existential orientation right but yeah now that you're in Cornwall and that's a bit of a change for you maybe this is a good question especially especially in light of what I know about your work maybe this is a good question to ask you as well how you feel like that geography right that space that country that countryside those ruins whatever it is um is forming you as a person or informing the kinds of questions that you're you're asking these days yeah it's a great question and it, and it's a major major part of my life um i thought about i listened to the episode with petra it was a great conversation and i thought about that when you when you asked her because um i you know i kicked off this project called labyrinth to which mainly works in cities and I, I kind of really started ramping that up in, in 2016, which was the same year that we moved here. And so I was kind of, on the one hand, working in, in city spaces, but I moved to somewhere that's really is, uh, where I live right here is sort of on the border of a town and then it's kind of moving into semi-rural. And the difference in my experience of the world, being in this landscape, uh, just really quite small, but uh, but really powerful, changes like I really noticed the seasons move and I, I, you know, I, I see way more birds flying around than, than I did I'm aware of insects and uh, I've got to know the names of all the different trees that I just never knew before uh, and it, it actually becomes like a you know the most important ritual of my year now is I light a fire every solstice and equinox because it actually feels like one of the most important things I can do for my mental health, because I just need to mark the passing, the changing of the light, because by being outside so much, um, and uh, where we are we're on the side of a creek, and so we can, can see quite a long way, and so in, in the summer you've got this absolutely extraordinary view, it's just beautiful, and then once you go into winter it's just kind of barren and you know it's, it's very wet here in the southwest and it gets very gray over winter and cold and dark and so processing the change in seasons uh is is just absolutely vital for me i have to go into each season now and this is only in the space of four years i've I found this but i have to go into each season intentionally or, or else it kind of throws me but cornwall itself has this very very rich cultural history well, you know, when uh, you, you commented on that photo I put on Facebook with the, um, there was this big like cross and on it, so that's up on a, a big hill, uh, looking down over a, a couple of towns, Red Ruth and Camborne. And um, where I was standing there, back in the kind of late 18th, uh, early 19th century, 
that was described as the richest square mile in the world. And the reason for that is that Cornwall's geology, Cornwall actually originally was part of the northwestern France. So, and then it get, kind of gets joined on to the, the southwest of England at some point. And so geologically, it's a very different place. It's actually a UNESCO heritage site because there's something like 98% of all known minerals in the world can be mm -hmm. found here. Mm -hmm. And so uh, mining is this hugely yeah. important, important part of Cornwall's history. That's right. I think I know that from watching Poldark, the, the um, <laughs> what's that, that series? Is it a BBC right. series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Poldark's amazing because it's like the, when you know the geography of Cornwall, he has to get from like uh, this, you know, one place to another place and he's got to ride a, on horseback and, um, you know, you'll see him traveling over this particular landscape and you're like, who would take that route? Like you wouldn't go, you wouldn't go that way, but it, it makes great, it makes great TV. But yeah, the, the mining thing is, is a really big part of, um, of Cornwall's heritage because, um, I mean, Cornwall basically exported mining uh, to, to most of the world. Um, uh, you know, a steam engine was invented here in Cornwall because uh, of, of innovations in mining. And so it, it was this hugely wealthy place. But that same place you go to now and you look down and it's one of the poorest places in the whole of Europe. And so the transformation in relation to the land and what the land gives and what the land then isn't able to give anymore yeah. is, um, you know, despite how stunning it is economically, it's, it's, it's changed dramatically. So I'm wondering, um, this idea of exportation and translation, how does mining from these origins in Cornwall get translated into the new technologies that are arising with steam and engines and combustion? You know, you, you kind of see this like new manufacturer of energy, which is a whole nother thread to go down, right? This kind of like uh, grafting of nature through the machine and we become, sorry, lots of different threads there. I actually have some thoughts on that, so I could give okay, it a go. Cool. So I think there's a few things in there, right? So first of all, we've got to ask, what are we talking about when we talk about translation? And, uh, you know, translation studies, which is the academic discipline uh, that I'm involved in. Uh, so currently working on a PhD at, at Queen's University, Belfast. You know, that's a discipline that's come out of a traditional understanding of translation as interlingual. That is uh, that owes itself to um, a, ver a very important essay by Jacobson, where he kind of talks about three types of translation, interlingual translation, intralingual translation. So the thing we're trying to do now where you use Americanisms and I use Britishisms uh, and then intersemiotic translation. But he, he calls interlingual translation translation proper. And that's massively shaped the discipline and so in one sense, the, the academic discipline has become a kind of adjunct to the professional translation and interpreting industry, which is obviously a massive thing around the world. But the theorizing of translation has over time taken it into the, the same kind of domain as philosophical hermeneutics and uh, things that, you know, in, in this podcast, you know, you talk about a lot. And, and, and that's how I got interested in it. And I think, so where I'm trying to push my work is on into the material nature of translation. What's the materiality of translation? And even how might you translate materials to kind of follow um, Tim Ingold in his anthropological work where he really wants to talk about, you know, let's stop talking about materiality. Like, tell me the story of a material. 
And I think this idea that materials have histories is a really crucial way of breaking the nature-culture distinction that has kind of plagued European thought. So actually, if, if I'm trying to tell the story of any kind of material, I mean, there's like basic ways I can do it, like with this laptop I'm using. I mean, there's, you know, we could start tracing the, uh, the materials that are used in here. You know, there'll be bits of cobalt that probably come from mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. You know, there's like plastic that will come from, at some point came from like an oil well, could be from the Middle East. Like, and then obviously you've got the whole financial uh, processes that actually led to the investment in Apple, which is, you know, I've got a MacBook here. So you've got, you've got financial processes rooted via offshore tax havens somewhere to ensure that Apple in Silicon Valley gets its financial investments. Uh, and then you've got people in, um, in factories in China manufacturing devices. And so you've got these whole kind of complex stories, even of just a product. And some of those are very like, you know, when we're talking about cobalt, we're talking about something that you can trace as an element and you can say it came from this mine. When you're talking about financial transactions, you're talking about something less obviously material, but still something that is fundamentally material. You know, there are server farms that need to be air conditioned in order for tra financial transactions to be processed. There are physical locations with banks in them uh, and there are minerals that were pulled together to form the concrete blocks that build the banks that house that you know on the offshore so when you start tracing the histories of materials and you start uh, building that into the narrative of how we operate culturally even just for this my one laptop uh, you you suddenly start telling a phenomenally complex story and so mm -hmm. So there are two ways that I think about that as translation. The first is to think about it in narrative terms. And uh, I mean, I can talk more about this, but the idea that we make meaning in narrative terms and so we can think materials in narrative terms and that the most basic function of human consciousness is to translate the narratives that we use to make any sense of why we're here from the past into the present. To me, that's the most basic thing that the that human consciousness does. What are the prerequisites that we need to have fundamentally more accurate or insistent translations of the past? Because as we kind of come into being, we are inheritors of a story that's been told thousands of times over and we're trying to find our part in it at various levels. So when you don't, I'm just wondering like if you don't have the access to the materials you need to translate accurately or ethically, right? To be ethically sourced, how, I mean, I'm basically asking like, if I've never seen uh, the past, how do I know the people who wrote the history about the past are telling the truth, especially when I've been stuck in this fucking valley my whole life? I'm sorry, a little, <laughs> little crude there, but. No, no, I, I, it's a great question. And, and it, um, I mean, it comes back to the problem in translation. It's the problem that's plagued translation studies, which is the problem of the original. Yeah. So, you know, throughout history, you know, going right back, you know, translation is one of the kind of oldest disciplines. The, the loss of the original in translation, that was the story that was being told about translation. You know, the, how do you preserve the original? How do you be most faithful to the original? Uh, and what translation studies has tried to do is to uh, explore the creativity 
that is involved in the act of translation, the adding to rather than just the taking away, you know, you raise a question of ethics. And I think that's a really good question because I mean, it's the problem in history generally, right? There is no way to be sure that you have a handle on the past. And even the most rigorous kind of history with the most thorough amount of research is only one perspective, one version. It involves a massive uh, act of editing. So there's always this sense of reaching back to try and translate, which is itself a creative act by which we continually make the future. You know, the, the question, how do we make sure that people have access to the tools they need to translate, I think is a great question it's you can never do it fully you can it's 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 part of the broader question of how do we um ensure that there are adequate opportunities educationally for for people in society at large that actually we we're able to get to know the place that we're in the history of the place and develop the critical tools so i, I think it's there, there's no way of like ever getting all of it the best yeah. you ever get is just a version I mean, I think just the fact that you sort of raised the specter of these ethical hazards is at least a good sort of first step in thinking through what what it means to be to do translation, to be a good translator and to be a responsible translator. I guess that's a term maybe that stands out to me is the sort of the sense of responsibility one needs to sort of take on as a translator. And this gets into the question for me of like, is there a distinction there between translation and mediation? Because an alternative to what you were sort of presenting is like the translator as standing in as a sort of like priestly figure, which can have, you know, problematic implications theologically or politically or so- socially, I guess. Is that a question that you've thought? Oh, I mean, I guess we're sort of, you know, glossing it a little bit here in, in, in terms of responsibility, but are there other sort of ways of talking about that that can be helpful? Um, so, th- I mean, this is what got me into it. Like I said, I came from uh, biblical <laughs> studies was my, was my background and uh, um, I did a lot with kind of um, post-structuralist philosophy and literary theory. Uh, and so I was kind of going into hermeneutics and the philosophy of hermeneutics. And that was really my discipline or how I thought about it for a while until I met a guy um, who actually now is my, uh, my PhD supervisor. And um, he said that the reason he liked translation was that it works better as a verb it's much easier to say you can translate than to say you kind of hermeneut, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe you say you, in, instead of saying you hermeneut, you say you interpret. Um, but as soon as you do that, you you layer on something onto hermeneutics, which isn't necessarily quite what, certainly what, what I was meaning when I meant hermeneutics. Uh, and so this idea that when you translate you have to do something you have to actually make a commitment you can't just spend ages talking about the theory of meaning making or how meaning moves or is created or destroyed you actually have to do something with that you have to actually decide to mean something and when by committing to one thing you're not committing to all of the other possible things that you could have said and that involves an ethical choice and it was that sense that actually translation is a way to make hermeneutics about ethics that is what yeah. that's what got me into it I, yeah. I think the, the question of mediation is a really I mean that's a, that's a whole other thing because I think there is I mean we could talk about that for hours um, all right because- well if we're gonna if that's gonna be an involved conversation maybe we sort of just circle back on that but sort of back up to some of the, the earlier things you were saying when Preston was asking 
asking about the sort of material conditions, the sort of development of technology in different ways. And some of the examples you were giving, it sort of brought to mind an interesting, I don't know if it's a tension exactly, but on one hand, you have this sort of more 19th century style materialism contrasted with another kind of materialism, which I know that we've talked a little bit about, which is a new materialism, right? We've had some discussions about sort of fitting within that tension of discursivity and materiality. And I think this is part of your project is getting at, right? The, the semiotics of space. It's a thorny territory, which is maybe why I keep, <laughs> I keep thinking about it. I get like, I get snagged in there in this relationship between materiality and discursivity. And I keep coming back to Karen Barad's notion of, well, interaction on one hand, but, but then her stitching together of matter and meaning as a similar zone. You know, we want to think about agency, um, uh, non-human, cyborg agency, whatever, in a way that leans or avoids leaning too far uh, on the one hand to like anthropomorphism and stuff like that. And on the other into like this weird contrivance that you get in something like uh, object-oriented ontology, where, right? Where you sort of imagine that you can talk about objects as having a life of their own. Maybe that's something we can talk ab about too. But yeah, I don't know. I just, this just, this just gets really interesting once you start talking about space understood materially or start, sorry, understood as a narrative, right? Inherited cultural narratives and development of technology and stuff like that. And what, and that gets really interesting once you take this materialist view. Can you say more about the semiotics of space as a, as a concept and what you're doing with that? And I don't know, did I characterize what you're doing Okay. Um, yeah, that was very. That was very good. I mean, so so you corrected yourself there because you talked about materiality, and then and and then you were like, no, I mean narrative. And what I'm trying to do is account for the materiality of narrative. So that's that's the essence of the project. So if translation involves a perpetual narrative retelling in order to have any sense of of any meaning in the world, what's the material processes by which that translation is happening? That was where I started from. Um, and so that has actually led me in the end to uh, Barad because of um, exactly what you said, that her concept of interaction and a, a gentle realism is really about the kind of, uh, so she, she talks about the difference between discourse and language. You know, discourse is not language. Discourse is the shape that constrains language. She's drawing on Foucault there. Right. For that idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, what Barad is trying to do is is trying to say, uh, when you get down to the the quantum, you know, she, she draws primarily on Niels Bohr, right? So uh, the Copenhagen School of Quantum Physics. So when you get down to quantum physics, a subatomic particle doesn't have a ontology that could be described in any kind of object kind of way it's not there in the world that is there it is constructed as a phenomena uh, through through the act of measuring it with an apparatus and that concept that that there is no object there are only phenomena is a profound kind of ontological change because it's saying the world is actually becoming not just like it was there and then it's becoming, but the world is constantly, you know, space-time is being constructed by the interaction between different phenomena. Right. Uh, and so, you know, so, 
I mean, that, that gets kind of incredibly sort of suddenly into the kind of relationship between philosophy and quantum physics, but you can, you can kind of start to draw that out. And that's what Barad does into saying, um, okay, well, actually we can look at the relationship between the material experience of being in the world. Um, so she draws on Judith Butler in terms of how Butler has done that with bodies. Um, but actually, you know, you can draw that much broader than bodies, uh, particularly the surfaces. You know, a lot of um, social constructivism is interested in the surfaces of bodies. But actually what Barad is saying is the very makeup of physical forms is a constant interaction between uh, different agents that create these phenomena. So the boundary between me and this laptop it's not as fixed as I might have thought it was. You know, I would say, oh, I know what I am. There's a boundary to me. And I know what that laptop is. There's a boundary to that laptop. But actually, the, the reason that there's a boundary is to do with the interaction of energies at the surface, the way that the molecules are holding together in, in my body and in this laptop are creating energies that repel in a certain way that they don't repel other energies within the body. And so you get the presence of form. So it's not... It's not that at a fundamental level, there is an object that is the laptop and there is an object that's me. It's that the, the flow of energies is such that form can be maintained, but the object is not in essence there in the world. It's only performed in the world by the interaction of different agencies. And I do think the implications of that are really profound. I mean, it's quite, it's quite a complex set of ideas to get to, I think, to build up to. For me, it's really, really compelling. And um, my uh, PhD work is really trying to um, deal with it, with what the potential impact of Barad could be on the study of semiotics. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? I mean, that sounds like yeah. a, an interesting way that gets cashed out. Yeah. So, so um, one of the one of the kind of foremost new materialist approaches in translation studies that's come out pretty recently is a work by a guy called Cobus Murray uh, called a biosemiotic theory of translation. And he really draws on Terence Deacon. Um, I think Trip, met, Trip Fuller mentioned Terence Deacon when he was talking about Percy and semiotics in uh, that he did with you recently. Um, yep. The thing about Deacon is that he builds his core ideas on the notion of absence so he, he's saying absence is is fundamental to form. You know, the fact that there's something that is not me allows there to be me. And, you know, the, the fact that there can be something that is not allows for something that is. Otherwise, everything is just all the same. To me, it seems like that plays into Persian semiotics in the sense that the basis of, of Persian semiotics is the idea that you have an object that is in some sense kind of fundamentally other. It's kind of unknowable, but it has to be represented. And so you have the representamen, which kind of mediates between the object and the interpretant. And so the, the, the interpretant is able to make sense of the object by accessing it via the representamen. Now you put that into a kind of process ontology and you get this idea that the, the world is becoming, you know, that there's one interpretant becomes its own object or its own representation of something else and so you get this constant change so biosemiotics is essentially saying that semiotic process is what you see at the cellular level so 
a cell recognizes a protein and uh, makes the, inter the correct interpretation to begin the process to replicate DNA, for example. You know, in a process ontology, biological life is constantly regenerating uh, because this semiotic process is happening at cellular level. And the production of form that has to work against uh, the second law of thermodynamics, the principle of entropy, that everything is kind of tending towards chaos and dissolution, is the negentropic force, which uses the available energies uh, informed by biosemiotic process, continues to create and sustain a certain type of form. And so that becomes the account of form from within that process ontology, is that form is created by a constant semiosis yeah. or biosemiosis. And I, I don't think that properly reckons with the quantum account of the nature of uh, matter. Um, it, because even though there's a process ontology that says the world is constantly becoming, it's constantly emerging, in the end, you've still got the process of mediation because there's an object, you need a representamen and you need an interpreter. And even if that's constantly changing, mm -hmm. each of those things is an object. And it seems to me that what Barad says convincingly is there are no objects. There are only phenomena that are produced through interactions. Mm -hmm. And so the question I've got is how then can that process of what's being called biosemiotics be rethought in the light of an agental realism that says ontology is about a performative phenomena rather than based in objects. I mean, that was what I started to think of when you asked me earlier about mediation, uh, you know, is translation and mediation. And I think that that kind of Persian semiotic view of translation says, yes, it is a mediation because it's a way of the representamen, which is the, the kind of core part of Persian semiotics, mediates this object, which is fundamentally other, uh, but then allows it to be translated as an interpreter. Um, but if you say that the object itself is not stable, uh, it isn't there, it's only performed in what you would call a phenomena, then that breaks down the sense that this is a kind of, this is a mediatory work uh, that this is a kind of a representative or representational ontology. So translation then becomes something that is more about attending to that process of change rather than saying you take something that was and then you turn it into something over here that's completely new. Uh, and I'm still figuring out how to think that through, really. Yeah, I suppose if you start with, you know, trying to, problematize or flatten out or however you want to talk about the nature, uh, culture split, right? So you have, you know, something like um, Haraway's, you know, nature, culture, however you want to talk about it. If that's your starting point, what are called biosemiotics? Why should that not be applied to non-living, non-human things? And, and, you know, looking at what can kind of come out of that. Maybe that gets into how you're applying and it goes back to something you were saying earlier. Right. Translation is something that must be put into action. It has to be performed. 
as I take it, that's what you're trying to get at with some of these different projects, like the, the labyrinth projects and, um, you know, the stuff that you presented to us in the, in the forum, I thought was fascinating. So maybe you can kind of make that connection for us. And maybe there's other examples that you could point to or, or different examples. Um, what, what the applicability, I suppose, might be. Sure. So, so, I mean, the labyrinth project is really about physical places. I mean, it's like a popular engagement tool, like it's not an academic project. Uh, and so I described that as uncovering the stories that quietly enforce the rules we live by so that together we can rewrite those rules. And so in practical terms, what that means is I work with groups of people in different places, uh, in different cities, um, a generally run kind of walking tours in, in those places for different groups of people with different contexts. And we, we kind of read spaces. I call it hacking cities. Uh, I like the image of a kind of, you know, roughly like hack something apart. It's kind of amateur, uh, brutal um, determination to it. Uh, but also I like the hack as a kind of, you know, like a computer hack, like it's an unauthorized access to a place. And in architecture, in public art, in the design of streets, there are, I think, stories in the sense of like broad narratives that are shaping the way that people live. In Barad's terms, they become like the the disc the uh, yeah the discourse that shapes what's possible. So if like language discourse is what is possible to say, then the kind of architectural discursive space of a city becomes what, how it's possible to live. Uh, there are certain things that are foreclosed because buildings are built in certain way, because streets are designed in certain ways, because uh, certain symbols uh, or icons are used or not used and, and so on. And yeah, I, I tend to work at border zones, uh, particularly mm -hmm. city spaces. So uh, that example I sent was uh, at the border of Morningside Heights and Harlem in kind of just about the Upper West Side in, in Manhattan. And, you know, there's no official border, but you, you become aware that you've crossed from one zone into the other. And that border is becoming more porous because of rezoning regulations in the city that allows, uh, particularly at the moment, Columbia University to kind of begin to colonize West Harlem. And there's a very strong racial dynamic to that. You know, Columbia is kind of a, a kind of icon of, uh, white liberal Manhattan and Harlem, of course, is is the icon of uh, of Black New York. So, it's it, that crossing of the border is really powerful. And so, what are the physical dynamics of the space? What are the semiotics in the sense of um, uh, what pushes or pulls certain meanings in certain directions that constrains the discourse of certain behaviour? Uh, or certain speech in, that keeps that part of the city how it is, uh, that maintains form in the face of change. And some of that change is bad. Some of that form, in my view, should be maintained. The Harlem at the moment should be protected. You know, part of the history of the US is that Harlem only gets formed because of the failure of reconstruction policies in the South. Uh, and so, you know, all of these freed slaves are then supposed to have land, they're then denied that land. So then there's this great migration, uh, a huge number end up in Harlem, 
and so create this kind of neighborhood that um, then generates its own agency and energy and life and culture. And it's like, well, you can't then start to dissolve that using the power of uh, white liberal finance um, without some kind of reference to the to the narrative of the past that got us here. So the maintenance of form can be a, a, an important uh, cause of justice, I think. Um, but then there are some forms that need to change. So there are some ways in which paying attention to the, the discursive limits of uh, space should actually be changed because that is actually how a place can change for the better. Some of the structures that keep people in poverty in cities, for example, um, uh, I've just been uh, doing some work in San Antonio, which is one of the most unequal places in, in the US. It, you know, it's an incredibly racially segregated city still. Uh, and that's built on the history of redlining from the 30s, where you know, federal uh, resources were made available to houses in white districts, but not made available to those in uh, black or Hispanic districts. And that couples with uh, um, educational structures where educational boards are allocated by housing zones and then funded according to uh, the income levels of those zones. So you've got people in poor neighborhoods denied access to finance who therefore have poor access, poor education funding. Um, and then you get stuck in this cycle. And, and you know, for, for nearly 100 years, San Antonio has been stuck in this cycle. Uh, but if you start to read the city of San Antonio, what you realize is that the, the structure of like the highways through the city bisects some of these, these different neighborhoods such that if you're white today in San Antonio, you can live just a few blocks away from incredibly poor black or Hispanic people yeah the wrong side of the, them. the wrong side of the tracks right yeah they, so, so for me that understanding the kind of discursive force of the way that places are constructed i sometimes talk about the semiotics of space I, I actually started talking about that less because i feel like actually in the end i'm partly talking about space but i really want to talk about place mm-hmm. because actually uh, you know place involves space but it also involves a whole load of kind of narrative constructs around that uh i think i think it ties into uh an essay that i might have read there's a tim ingold essay that i read in uh especially an anthropology course but in sociology course but i just remember the the main ideas were that uh globe versus world and it's this idea of like you're talking about uh space versus place i think the there's a metaphor where you can look at time or, or space or geography as a place outside that you're looking down upon like you're saying earlier uh upon like from the outside kind of like the the Kantian noumena right like you're you're on the outside looking in <laughs> I think the other metaphor though that I latched onto seemed to have like an ethical imperative in a sense of warmth to it what you're talking about is place right where it's like you belong to it and I'm wondering if there's a third option moving beyond place to something new where it's like you don't belong to space but you don't belong to place either and it's like a, it's a novel territory and I'm wondering what kind of translating work you can do there drawing upon sources from the past when we're basically you know, netscaping an entire reality that doesn't even exist. And for me, like, this might be racist, but, you know, Cornwall, and uh, I think immediately, especially with your accent of, uh, um, what's his name, Alan Moore, right? So I, I don't want to pigeonhole white British folk, English, Englanders, whatever, dude, I don't know the linguistics over there, right? I know one language is American, 
and they don't even know it that well. <laughs> but anyway, so this translating work into novelty, newness, like the, the things that don't exist, but that are being called into being Alan Moore magic as writing. Like when we're creating worlds, that's literally magic. We're just sigilizing being the cooler ones of us see how those sigils affect the world around us. Cause then you can create these netscapes. The, the spiders right. will get you getting on the webs. Uh, yeah. I'm just wondering about patterns, translation, and maybe you can connect some threads together there as a, a widow maker. Yeah. I, I, I loved all that Preston. That was, a, I really loved the riff. There's so many things in there. So um, a few things to, to try and draw together. So Tim Ingold talks about mesh work as a kind of core concept for a framing of the um, a framing of the world, and particularly in there, there's a kind of knottiness of place, as in like a knot, you know, that you tie, and it's got all these different strands in it, and it and it's not itself, it's the it's the interweaving of lines that come in and out of a certain place. Uh, and I, I like what you said about the relationship between place and space. You know, space is a very abstract concept. Place is something with depth and meaning. Right? The, the important relationship for me between space and place is that space is a way of thinking about the discursive force that maintains the sense of place. But if we then think about globe versus world and we think about the you know uh, writing as world making you know for me that is the key is that there is no world there are worlds we're right. constantly making worlds and so even in one place characterized by certain spaces with physical geometry there are multiple worlds and so the qu the question of what does a place mean how to translate a place is problematized by the fact that there are multiple worlds being made within it. So, you know, here, here where I live, um, you know, it's not a kind of contested zone like uh, like the border of uh, Morningside Heights and Harlem, but you do actually have a contest between Cornish and English identities, which actually runs really deep. Cornwall was referred to as an independent nation as recently as the 16th century, uh, you know, because for us that's recent. Uh, and um, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about, about cultural memory, I think, in the translation of place that is, uh, and the translation of culture, which is, which relates to the sense in which, what difference does it make when you become a, a settler people to a people that lived in the land a long time? We managed to kind of export our oppression largely somewhere else so that we didn't have to face it. And, and you guys have had to face it on your own land in a different kind of way. So there's a I think there's a lot of complexity there about the, the kind of cultural history of how place and meaning and, and the kind of cultural structures get translated over time. Um, but I think this idea of world building, you know, we're not, there is no one world, there are many worlds, and we're all involved in building multiple worlds. Mm. And, and how we imagine those intersecting uh, is, for me, is a, is a core part of the, yeah. um, the, the construction of place. There, there's another sense in which I think people are, perhaps in their own way, becoming more familiar of that process, maybe not in the kind of language that we're putting forth here, but like, I don't know, it just occurs to me like one of the possible, I don't know, not a crit criticism, but a, a, an, an issue with this kind of approach, right, is that to the extent that this is a, in part, I view it as a sort of deconstructive project, broadly construed, it seems to be like, like mirroring in a certain sense, what we've always had in the church, in politics, et cetera, right? There's always a contest of narratives, right? And everyone 
seems tacitly engaged in this process, you know, now intensified through social media. And like, maybe this is pressing what you're getting to the sort of virtualization of, of space, or I guess we can't say place exactly, but um, and when we're talking to Petra, Preston mentioned that we've never gone through like a proper death of God here in, in the States, right? But we're just skipping right over the death of God and going straight to the death of grammar. Right? God, God lingers like a bad fart in America. <laughs> the na- that's the name of the episode. <laughs> we're, we're hotboxing the, the bad fart of God over here. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, thank you. So what, I, what I'm trying to get at, I guess, is like, I want to sort of uh, affirm the ontological bringing together of narrative and materiality in the way that you're describing. But I'm less clear about how it gets cashed out in a way that avoids the endless proliferation of narratives. But maybe, maybe it's just unavoidable. Maybe it's just par for course. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, there are always endless proliferation of narratives because we're always constantly translating the past into the future. So when we say there is like a narrative, what we mean is like enough of us share the same kind of story that it, it there's some kind of resonance to it. It has some kind of cultural force. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it comes down to the question of um, if you're going to organize a society, how do you deal with pluralism? If, if you only allow one mm-hmm. single story and you have a kind of authoritarian, you know, this is the one that we all must repeat. You, you're just pretending that all the other stories are, are not there. I mean, they're still there. You're just saying they're unauthorized. I mean, this for me is where translation is really important because, you know, if you can allow the telling of multiple narratives as multiple worlds are built, but you can create a a culture in which those are mutually translated, Mm -hmm. then that can become something that is full of respect and generosity and uh, difference as a value, but uh, is not a kind of fundamental category. So that kind of reading across difference is crucial, but uh, to me in, in translation, but it's not, um, uh, I mean, this is where I think Barad's concept of diffraction is really helpful because, um, because the diffraction for her is about, it's not about saying there's this, you know, otherness is total. It's about reading things within and against other things. Um, the way that I actually design labyrinth experiences, the, the concept of the labyrinth is based on that kind of medieval labyrinth where you walk around and, you know, that kind of got popular again in recent times. But I, I find them sort of quite boring. Uh, I've been in one or two that have been a bit all right. But so the two things I thought this this could be more interesting. So one is what if you scaled it to the to the neighborhood level and then the pathway emerges as something that takes you within the familiar, uh, within a familiar neighbourhood, but makes it unfamiliar. So this is really drawing on a kind of situation, the situationists who would take their kind of avant-garde route through uh, the physical landscape. There's something called psychogeography, which is, yeah. uh, you know, the, the kind of impact of, of, ge- of, of the built environment or geographic environment on your psychology, your experience. of being Yeah, Al- Alan Moore wrote that freaking brick called Jerusalem based on his wanderings around the town he grew up in. He's lived in the same place his whole life. I forget what town it is, but yeah, he's, that was the process he went through. He just, he just walk around town every day and he learned all the lines, all the threads of that space. He started pulling on them and you know, the whole ball of wax falls out and then he realized it's the center of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. 
so that yeah that's exactly it and and but i think that like trying to track the, the thing about the, the the concept of the labyrinth is like trying mm. to trace a particular pathway but it's deliberately disorienting you know the idea that you have to twist and turn around in order to get to the center and then the crucial point is the center is a dead end and so you you, you face a what for me is is you know i try to design these so that you face a kind of uh, moment of crisis you know ideally existential where you you have to then reckon with the journey you've taken and either you find a way to retrace your steps or you have to quit and and the kind of courage to retrace your steps and, and means that you can emerge changed So I, I think that you know, the big challenge of our time is how to translate across the divide of like fundamentally opposing worldviews. And I think for me, this concept of the destruction of the globe, I mean, Ingold talks about that difference between globe and world. Latour is where I focus more on the destruction of the globe, uh, his concept in, uh, around facing Gaia. Um, so, so I don't know if you're familiar with any of that. So, so Latour does the, it's the 2013 Gifford lectures that he gives, which uh, there's like a six uh, YouTube videos that are just available. It's really worth a watch. And then it gets um, quite heavily revised and published as Facing Gaia. And one of the core ideas in there is that, um, so he contrasts Galileo with James Lovelock, you know, who wrote the Gaia hypothesis. He kind of shows them both as like serious uh, scientists, because Lovelock gets a lot of stick, but you know, it's Galileo gives us this view of the globe, and what Lovelock does is demonstrate the way in which the Earth is created by multiple different physical, chemical forces, uh, interactions. Um, you know, you can read it, I think, in quite a, a Baradian way, and so. Uh, what Latour advocates is a return to a kind of sublunary worldview. Let's get back to the point where we look up to the sky and we see the moon and the stars, because then we can get away from this idea that everything has to be part of one whole. I think the problem has been that we've, we're so desperate to resolve all of these fundamentally different worldviews into one thing so that we can just feel okay again we can like feel like our politics are more stable and our culture is more stable you know our being somehow is more stable we, we kind of just panic about the problem of just living with people that are fundamentally different from us um, but I, I think that the the idea of being able to face a profound sense of anxiety about the world and not run away from the anxiety is absolutely fundamental to the process of um, translating in a kind of sensitive, careful, generous, respectful way. You know, I just don't have to agree with everybody else. I don't, 
I don't need everybody else to share my view of the world. But the alternative is some kind of monism. And, um, you know, there I would, I would come back to Latour in We Have Never Been Modern and the idea that, you know, we're constantly saying that we're separating things that actually are not separate. They're constantly being translated together. Is this constant pretense. If you pretend that everything is one, when in fact it's many, all you end up with is some kind of authoritarianism. It's still many. You're just not yeah. acknowledging it. And it's hard sometimes when you get stuck in the void, right, to recognize that um, the multiplicity can be overwhelming. Like you're saying just a little while ago, how you don't necessarily need me to take on your narrative. Um, you can respect that there are other life strands that are different, fundamentally different, and even maybe antagonistic towards yours and mine too. Uh, it can be very energetic. It can be very exhausting depending upon your state, right? To recognize that the, the multiplicity and the diversity of stories, narrative, translations, and that translating work can be very exhausting sometimes depending upon, again, how many languages you inhabit and have inhabited you. I'm just kind of commenting upon like what you're saying because I have thoughts about how that relates to my life in terms of my own like biography, if you will, biography, zoography, right? To use an Agambenian kind of uh, riff on Aristotle, right? Where we're talking about bios is a type of political life. And you got the zoe, which is a type of, you know, spiritual, or I guess he would probably say bare life, right? A, a mundane life, but a, a mundane life as ruled by the bios. And when the bios constrains all form of spirituality, all you are left with is consumerism, right? You eat, drink shit and go to bed. And so since that's the positing of commercial capitalism, since, you know, like we can trace this back, right? But like, you know, Florence maybe in the 1200s with this invention of the Italian Renaissance and, but basically like the emergence of credit, the emergence of uh, the theology of money wedded into a type of sovereignty, right? So I, I do think like, again, we Americans have a blindness to the fact that our history didn't begin 250 years ago. Like there's a whole history behind the history that gets erased and gets put under lock and key because um, basically it's a tool of biopolitics, right? And that's the institutional educational system. And sometimes you break from it to connect back um, and you see larger strands. Um, yeah, yeah. But when you grow up, when you grow up in a state of, of ignorance, not of innocence, of ignorance, and you still feel like you you side with the right team, so to speak, the underdogs, the people who have been oppressed here, and you learn more and more about that, and you and you break from that, it creates a, a gap inside of yourself, right? Where it's good to break from that shit because that those norms, even though you never had them, still imbued you, and they're horrible. But you you end up speaking to other people who are also translating my language or your language uh, in a way that's not so healthy, right, and helpful. I have some thoughts on that about um, in relation to post-colonial theory which was the focus of my master's thesis. I wrote a deconstruction of, of the transfiguration in Mark's gospel with uh, Homi Baba, who's a kind of major post-colonial theorist. And, and he, he draws heavily on Lacan uh, and Derrida. Uh, and so in terms of Derrida, there's a, an idea of cultural, he talks about cultural difference, uh, but difference in, this, in, in a kind of Derridian sense that this is, is, is constantly unstable. So the difference between cultures is not, so, you can't say this culture is here and that culture is, is there, this culture is this, that culture is that, but there's this constant slippage and movement between them. But the, the relationship between the two is, is ambiguous, it's ambivalent in, in Baba's term. And that ambivalence gives rise to a kind of, um, to what Baba would call a hybridity. 
and so the hybrid is not a kind of Hegelian dialectic where you know one side and the other then sublimates into into some kind of hybrid but it's a fundamentally unstable hybrid and that hybrid culture becomes a place with the instability becomes a place of of political possibility and cultural possibility um and so babel would then talk about the, the a third space so it becomes a third space of enunciation a third space to speak a different kind of language different kind of identity different kind of culture and politics um yeah. i think the crucial thing about a baban third space or place is that it doesn't exist it's not there it's like a you know you can't pin it down it becomes a way of problematizing the dominant ways of conceptualizing It's time for a Bible story. This story happened about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was here on the earth. One day, Jesus went up to a high mountain and brought a few of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. Nice, going on a little hiking trip, huh? See the great outdoors, climb a mountain, maybe do a little fishing of men, get it? Yeah, I get it. But that's not why they went up onto the mountain. It was way more important than just a hiking trip. Jesus wanted to show them something incredible. When they got up to the top of the mountain, Jesus' appearance changed. The Bible says that his face shone bright like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Whoa, I hope they brought their sunglasses or they'd be all like, my eyes. So I wrote my, I wrote this master's thesis on Baba and the transfiguration in Mark's gospel. And the way that I used Baba to deal with the transfiguration was to introduce the problem of hybridity in that theophanic episode and the key idea from Baba that I utilized was the uh, the metonym so metonym in language is the kind of the thing that automatically stands in for something else you know you say the White House said you know it's obviously not the White House it's like the president and then it's not the president it's, it's the person who's the president but these the metonym stands in and Baba likes metonyms because they are kind of part objects if you push them their authority crumbles and so I took that to the um, the voice in the clouds at the transfiguration and the instability created by the fact that Moses and Elijah are both there with Jesus and when you have the um, theophanies for Moses and Elijah in the um, Hebrew Bible you've got them both on Mount Sinai both of them have kind of ground shaking wind fire you know uh, but for Moses Yahweh appears, gives him the law. But for Elijah, Yahweh is specifically not in the earthquake, wind and fire. He's in that the still small voice. So when that cloud descends and you've got all the kind of same theophanic conditions and you've got these two people who experience that theophany in completely different ways, it problematizes the metonym of the cloud. So you're forced to ask, is Yahweh in that cloud or not? And, and that instability at that essentially like a site of authority in the text where the kind of God character is supposed to be revealed actually provides the opportunity to then reread the text. So I, I essentially bring in the figure of Satan into the cloud uh, so it becomes a kind of God-Satan question um, or a Yahweh-Satan question specifically. And, and the reading is really about 
it's about Jesus essentially eluding God. I like the idea of eluding. It's not it's not killing. It's not overthrowing. Uh, it's sort of like escaping, but it's it's kind of escaping with some cunning or maybe not cunning, but just somehow like mm-hmm. finding a way to escape. And so the, the, the death becomes the illusion, uh, the illusion with an E of God who is kind of wrapped up with Satan in that image of the cloud because of the undecidability and the kind of association with, um, with this kind of imperialist story. I kind of track Moses and Elijah back to the fact that, the, that when both of their uh, the kind of key moments, they're followed by intense violence. So Moses comes down the mountain and kills like kill 3000 of the uh, people because of the golden calf. And for Elijah, it's like the death of all the priests on Carmel. So you've got this yeah. like intense violence. So there's this kind of satanic right. thing kind of wrapped up in it. And maybe that's more well, like a traditional satanic reading. But the idea of eluding is like the idea of Try, of actually that's where the third space comes in right you create there's this kind of elusive third space that um mm-hmm. for me is is it c- could then be represented by the empty tomb that the empty tomb is not like a um a kind of ta-da we're back but is this kind of very slippery third space and i suppose if i was just to take that into the question of materiality i think that, that, mm-hmm. that as a narrative for me that becomes a way of um of talking about the relationship between or the what constrains and dominates <laughs> our way of being in a place uh, or being in the world wherever we are and, mm-hmm. and what possibilities exist to kind of uh, elude that um, without necessarily being able to change the political system that we live in or the massive cultural structures that we face day in day out. I liked your thoughts there about how Yahweh and Satan are both up in the cloud. And it just reminded me further on in your response that um, Altizer, which we talked about with Petra last week, had this experience of, you know, imbuing basically Satan and then also imbuing God, like sometime either before or after that experience, mm-hmm. there's this kind of ingesting through the eyes and the ears and this tactility and the sensibility, right? Which is an interesting question. We're talking about gods and Satan becoming yeah. material, right? In the, in the, mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, there's that indeterminacy. If you look at it in sort of maybe in a Hegelian way or, you know, going back to like Bohm or something like this, a sort of coincidentia. Appositorum. Yeah, thank you. And then, you know, it's, it has this sort of occult dimension running through these kinds of questions that are, I think, very ancient and they get sort of like articulated through history in, in different kinds of ways. But, yeah. you know, that, that occult thread brought to mind the your general interest in alchemy and you know maybe we can give a sort of alchemical spin to some of this right you know like maybe we can talk about the semiotics of place is a there's a central idea there of transmutation or tracking the way that transformation is taking place uh through narrative and through materiality and maybe we can broaden this out so my interest in alchemy i mean it's pretty um it's pretty random route i got there but uh, i just started to feel like there was something in this and you know, like the quest for gold is a quest for uh, immortality. I suppose the key thing for me about alchemy is it, it become parodied as a practice. You know, the kind of history of alchemy is I uh, was essentially like a bunch of joke proto chemists who kind of failed. And then thankfully science came along. I don't, I don't think that's a fair story. Um, you know, there's a bit of that going on, but actually alchemy is a very ancient, very global religious practice that that spreads all along the silk road really in the ancient world right from ancient egypt to Taoist china 
Tibet, uh, South Indian uh, subcontinent, uh, and in ancient Greece as well. So, so you've got this really interesting mix, and it comes to Europe via Greece, but it, it has got this very global flavour, or I don't like the very global, but it's, you know, it's, it's all over. And I find it particularly interesting in a few ways. So, so the quest for gold is this quest for immortality. And for me, that it comes back to some of the things we're saying here, you know, what you say and where you say it from really affects what it means. So the quest for immortality for a culture that is dying is different from the quest for immortality for the culture that is, uh, that is very much on top and is alive and is dominating. Uh, you know, one is a kind of clinging on to power and the other is a kind of quest for legitimacy and survival. And they carry very different ethical uh, resonances, I think. And then the other is the, the kind of prioritization of the idea of the cycle. So the Ouroboros, uh, the, the snake that eats its own tail or the dragon that eats its own tail in the Eastern tradition. The more I read about alchemy, the more it became about a cycle of time, that it was a kind of constant recycling of time. That was the kind of the assumption that was going on, you know, to, we don't have that concept of time in a post enlightenment kind of European shaped worldview. So that for us requires this great leap, but actually it seems to me that alchemy just presupposes that. And, you know, the idea of the Phoenix dying and being reborn, it leads to a fundamental instability at the heart of materiality. Uh, and so the quest to produce gold from lead, you know, the process is that you produce some silver from the waste lead and then you produce the gold from within the silver and then you produce the, uh, the elixir or the philosopher's stone from within the gold. And, and there's this, this idea almost that the material itself, the silver is contained within the lead, but it has to be produced from within, that the lead isn't ontologically lead. It contains some, a seed of something that's not itself. I feel like there's a lot in that idea that there's a materiality that isn't just things that are themselves, but that things are unstable. And from those other things can be produced. Um, when you come to think about time, that time temporality is the basis of narrative and narrative is the basis of how we make meaning. And so if you can, uh, if you can think about time as a cycle, then the, the narrative time changes. I think there's temporalities in these cycles that it seems like we're not in control of, right? There are flows and patterns and structures that kind of exist independent of any kind of willing on like my part or your part. At least that's my assumption on my part. We're machining, right? I, I was having this conversation last year at a, in a PhD study, uh, GCAS, a really cool professor, I forget his name, I think, but anyways, he was talking about, you know, he does a lot of philosophy of, of neuropsychology, cognition, the mind on how to, uh, mentality can be smudged in a lot of ways. Like what we think of as our, in the, in like kind of our, uh, our cogito, right? To put in Cartesian terms, where we think like, I have my own thoughts. The only way you guys are aware of them is if my muscles move in a certain way, or if I speak a certain way. I mean, are we the product, our cognition, the product of unconscious machines? And like, they're just like these little nano robots holding up our conscious cells, right? I just have this weird kind of psychedelic image in my head, but there's an interesting thread there between the machinic, right? And this idea that there are patterns of behavior that can be analyzed like the psychologists and the sociologists have been doing for a long time, right? And if you can understand those patterns, you can intervene in those patterns and say something positive, negative, deconstructive, right? You can create new narratives for people and, uh, 
anyways, that just connects for me with um, this character Armitage from uh, Neuromancer, which is a great book and a great title if you haven't read it. Yeah, it's on my shelf. I got I, I started it and didn't get through it. I'll go back to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the question of cognition and like what is actually happening in our brains and our bodies that mean that that ongoing translation of narratives occurs you know what part of that is determined uh, by forces i mean i, I don't I, i'm not I, i'm not a fan of determinism as an idea because it seems to me too simple i'm much more interested in the play of forces uh, which is something I take from Latour. And my development of Latour is I want to describe that in much more developed narrative terms, that the forces become plays between different characters in a drama along a plot line. And for the plot line, you need temporality. Uh, so all of that is in there as part of the question of like, which narratives, which forces, which discursive constraints operate on our ability to make choices the, the problem with it is you can really go down the rabbit hole you know I just don't think there's a way of credibly answering that question in, in a kind of you know bird's eye view even if we say okay we're going to assume that there's a human subject here um yeah you know here's how I kind of chop up their conscious experience of the world and and you know yeah. describe yeah. the assemblage of different well parts. that's why I, I agree with you you're never going to kind of hit get down to brass tacks on that right but the application of various models are helpful and we don't necessarily need to sort of restrict those to you know modern you know cognitive science you know doing brain scans and stuff like that that's all that's all great that's important that's an important part of the the bigger picture and the total conversation, right? But I mean, I, there's value in retrieving older ways of talking about this stuff, right? Like, oh, you're possessed by a demon, you know? Naming the, it, in some ways it's kind of simple, right? You, the first thing a doctor does if you have, if you have an illness, you, you go to him, he's like, well, let's figure out what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you go from there, right? So it's a way of modeling, it's a way of framing, it's a way of speaking, it's a contrivance. I mean, these are all, uh, contrivances in their in their own way, but they're all useful. Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. I think um, I suppose I was, I'm trying to think through, like from a therapeutic intervention point of view, how does the translation of narratives actually become productive? How does it become useful therapeutically? You know, I feel like the question behind your question is, can, can you give me some meaning? Like you. <laughs> How, how does a, tra a, a kind of material translation of narratives help construct meaning in the world? Well, not just construct meaning, but like, this goes back to my question I was getting at, is meaning just inherent in the world, right? Is the world fundamentally in sort of like realist terms, a meaningful place? Or is this sort of semiotic operation or, or a sort of a sort of way of overlaying, you know, or relaying uh, and navigating our way through the world? I think my way of seeing the world is that the world is meaning as a verb. It is consistently meaning. And again, I think for that, I come back to Barad. The process by which matter is interacting and creating uh, in a phenomenon is meaning. Now, whether that is meaningful, like to you or I in any given moment, I think is a different question mm -hmm. because it's a much more circumscribed 
question you know that that way of seeing the world as as a constant process of meaning has important implications for you know ontologically epistemologically how we construct our idea of what the world is and but the question of do we in any given moment feel like the world is meaningful is to me that is a much more you know it's like a psychological question that I suppose a different way of framing it or a different way of coming at it is to think about uh, how certain cultures and by cultures I would mean like nature cultures you know not just groups of humans interacting but entire sort of ecosystems of, of beings and objects and how you know how we want to talk about that that those create meanings that um, that result in worlds being made and sustained and changed again how you or I feel about any of those worlds that we're involved in making or that impinge on the worlds that we're making is a, is a different question I think yeah I, I really appreciate the podcast and you know for me coming on is, is meaningful to me because uh you know like I've listened to all the episodes because I would have done anyway like I yeah. uh, it, it's, it's a conversation that I you know I really appreciate yeah. the questions you ask and your capacity to listen to people and um yeah so you know appreciate being part of it thanks for having me on yeah no it's great that you can see the sausage being made <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so no it's been it's been a it's been a pleasure and a trip and um, yep. anything that you want to uh, add at the end here? Do you want to point people to where they can find you and your and your work? Uh, yeah, the we- website is where the um, article on alchemy is, uh, mapala.com. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, Bible Pirate Podcast is available on all good podcast channels. It's definitely not a podcast like this one in that there's no conversation. It's just like half-hour episodes of me trying to give really tight, kind of pre-planned uh edited content but it was like my way of of telling a story um that i felt i hadn't been told to be honest i wasn't even sure i was going to go before i started and then I, as i've told it I've, it's become a story for me that, that mm-hmm. has actually really affected me so it's been it's been a great project for me oh it's like so many things right if you it's sort yeah. of de- too much deliberation you'll never get anything done sometimes you just kind of kind of jump in and see where it goes yeah yeah it's a creative process you yeah i often don't know what i think until i write yeah no i'm the same way i, I totally relate to that i have up oh, i had pause i have one fleeting final question for matt my friend and uh, jesse sharp and i were talking the other day about how basically uh the universe is rudderless there is no driver and so connecting to this idea of of uh, a multiplicity without a one like there's no one story so we're always doing multiple translations how do you become a pirate in a rudderless world what is the what is the piratocracy uh, I love when there question. are no, when there is no <laughs> navigation, that's brilliant. Well, I um, I don't know if you've read Kester Bruin's book Mutiny. Uh, I, I have that, it sitting here. Yeah, yeah, I really like that book. You know, he does a great job. I think of um, of kind of creating the pirate as a cultural symbol, but it's it's absolutely defined by its being outside of a system. It presupposes that there's yeah. a system. So you could say that the world is a rudderless world. But like someone thinks they've got the rudder. Like someone thinks they've got their 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 there's, they've got yeah, the there's direction. A multiplicity of rudders. <laughs> yeah, right. It's rudders all the way down. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> but, but the point is that some people have got the power to say that this world is being, you know, that, that that's a, a thing that America does. It's a thing that Britain has done very successfully. It's like, mm. we know what's going on. Like we, we've got a plan. Like we, we're making an economy, we're making an empire, we're, we're, we're making a story, right? It, yeah. All of that is part of creating a sense that the, the world is mm. being uh, well, you know, there's, yeah. someone's got their hand on the tiller, like this is going where, this is going somewhere. And it isn't. Yeah, manifest, it, manifest it, destiny, right? Right, exactly. So, so piracy. Manifest destiny's child. <laughs> wait 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 that's that. the, that's the should we call that should that be the name of the episode well it's been pretty long that could be the name of episode two apparently sorry matt if it, go ahead finish your thought man well so the the idea of piracy is being on the outside and i think that the the point i would say is you know when you create the illusion that the world is being rudded the pirate move is to is to create the you know the Kester Bruin talks about the temporary autonomous zone and I, I read into that that kind of barbon third space it is possible in deliberately through the instability of the world as we find it where objects are not really fully objects in an ontological sense to create a kind of uh, temporary autonomous zone in which you create some kind of stability and meaning and community and purpose outside of that kind of domineering system that says that you know the world has to be like this we have to live this way you know capitalism is the only answer whatever it is you know that becomes a way of um of using instability to create something good you're not creating a world with a rudder you're not like solving meaning or creating the one it's a kind of resistive creative move within the context that you find yourself okay. yeah great cool let's leave it there have a good day yeah cheers see you guys right. peace thanks again to matt I've linked to his website and there's a couple other things in the show notes. Take a look. Thank you for listening through to the end. I guess maybe I should mention we're talking to Tim Ingold next month. I forget when exactly, but Matt's going to jump in and help out and be a part of that conversation. So we're looking forward to that. Also, next up, we're speaking to anarchist uh, or post-anarchist, maybe I should say, Saul Newman, who is recommended to us by Federico when we spoke to him uh, a while back. So that should be fun. Theme music is by Nikki 9 Check out his Bandcamp in the show notes. Outro music, graphic, and audio design by Matt Baker. And see you next time.